This is Exposing Washington with Walker Wildman, bringing clarity to Washington, D.C. news. We see corruption at every level in Washington, and it's in both parties. Exposing the deception plaguing our nation's capital. Not only what he told every Republican senator, but what he told the press over and over and over again was a simple lie. And helping Christians stay informed about government. Now, of course, this puts a bigger burden on voters to go figure out what's actually going on. Be sure to visit AFR.net or wherever you get your podcast to hear past episodes. This is Exposing Washington with Walker Wildman on American Family Radio. Welcome to Exposing Washington on the American Family Radio Network. Glad to have you with us today. On the show, American Family Radio is the network. Exposing Washington is the show. My name is Walker Wildman. Once again, good to have you with us today. Check out our website, AFR.net. AFR.net is our website. And, of course, you can download the AFR app uh, whenever you would like. Just go to the App Store uh, on your phone, on your tablet device, and type in AFR, and you can download the AFR app there. And listen live anytime you would like, so long as you have an internet connection. A couple of different things we're going to talk about today. Uh, mainly, we're going to focus on this, uh, the coronavirus, but we're going to take a, a few different angles here and talk more about the ramifications and the things that that uh, relate to day-to-day life here in our country. So we'll break this down a little bit at a time. If you want to keep up with news, uh, across the country, a great website that we run is onenewsnow.com. Onenewsnow.com is where you can go to listen to uh, the the hourly news podcast, but you can also get news articles there at onenewsnow.com. So a lot of great content there. Jumping right into this, we're uh, as I'm recording on Friday afternoon, this show will air, you'll hear this show on uh, American Family Radio on Saturday afternoon at 2.30 p.m. Central. But as of this recording, and I'm recording on Friday afternoon, the, the, the case number in the world is that about 255,000 cases of this Chinese virus. And in America, well, now we're at 263,000. This is going up by the hour almost because you're seeing the multiplication happen. In America, as of Friday afternoon, uh, the U.S. is at about roughly 15,000 cases, confirmed cases. In uh, the U.S., a little over 200 fatalities here in America. So this number is changing by the hour, so it's hard to really pin down uh, the number we're at. You just have to keep up with it yourself. Um. There's a lot of different thoughts going on in people's minds. And, you know, one of them is, you know, how, what, a lot of questions that, that people are asking is, what is, what's going on here? What, why is everyone, uh, why are people concerned? Why are we having to take these various precautions that we're having to do? Some very extreme and the, the only thing that I can see here, the, the main issue from my perspective, and this is my opinion, this is an opinion show, this is my commentary, I'm not a doctor, 
nor am I an economist, etc., etc., but I give my commentary on all of these issues. The main issue when it when it regards in regard to this coronavirus is the hospitalization rate. What does that mean? You have an overall number of of people that that get infected with the virus. And then you have a hospitalization rate. That means how many people who get infected need to go to the hospital or need to be treated at the emergency room. That make that that's what helps you come up with the hospitalization rate. And the hospitalization rate at this point and this this is changing just like everything else is changing. The current hospitalization rate for the Chinese coronavirus is 19%, thereabouts. Once again, that's changing. But somewhere around 19 to 20% is the hospitalization rate for this virus. And you'll hear people say, and it's true, that, that this mostly affects older people over 60, 65, and those who have underlying health conditions. But that's not an absolute. There are, quote, young people that need to be hospitalized with this. And so to put this in, in, to, to compare apples to apples, if you will, the flu, the annual flu, the seasonal flu virus, the hospitalization rate with that is about 2%. So 20% hospitalization rate for the coronavirus, 2% for the flu. That seems to be, yes, the coronavirus has a, has a, it's appearing to be about a 1% or 2% fatality rate. But that's not, that doesn't seem to be the, the overall problem here. What these various states and municipalities seem to be trying to do by taking these drastic measures is to slow down the hospitalization rate, the number of people who need hospitalization, so that our healthcare facilities can actual, actually handle the load that they're being offered, handle the patient load that's being brought their way. Because if you don't take any precautions, then our hospitals will become overrun in a matter of days with no precautions taken, and that would be a very bad situation on our healthcare system. Shifting to um, some news out of Washington, D.C. in regards to this, well, before I do that, I want to play a clip here. This is clip one. Dr. Mark Siegel has been on Fox News the past few weeks, and he is a uh, doctor, obviously, I just said that, but he's also been in, uh, been in the medical field for years. And this is his take on what New York State and New York City is dealing with, specifically when it comes to the percentage of hospitalizations. Let's listen to clip one. It's bad and it's getting worse. As you said, Brian, we've seen a 60 percent increase in cases in New York overnight alone. And we have uh, 
close to 4,000 cases in the New York area, 6,500 cases in the three states, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. We have 100,000 hospital beds in New York City and New York general area, but that is actually not going to be enough given the number of people with COVID-19 who end up with pneumonia or associated complications. We're seeing it affects not only the elderly, unfortunately. The vast majority of cases are still mild, though. I want everyone out there to know, but we need to gear up hospitals. The president invoking the Defense Production Act the other day, which was originally brought in 1950 in response to the Korean War, is, was an extremely smart move because it will allow, it will compel businesses to pony up the kind of supplies we need in hospitals that we're not getting, Brian. We're not getting the supplies we need. Well, there you have it. That's Dr. Mark Siegel talking about uh, New York City and New York State and the number of cases there. When when you look at that, there was there was a very important number he just gave out there, and that is uh, Dr. Mark Siegel said, and I believe um, this this is correct that New York City and the surrounding area they have about uh, roughly 100,000 hospital rooms. As a matter of fact, let me play that again, Brent. Let's go ahead and play clip one one more time just to make sure I get that number right. Clip one. Let's it's bad and it's getting worse. As you said, Brian, we've seen a 60% increase in cases in New York overnight alone, and we have uh, close to 4,000 cases in the New York area, 6,500 cases in the three states, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. We have 100,000 hospital beds in New York City and New York general area, but that is actually not going to be enough given the number of people with COVID-19 who end up with pneumonia or associated complications. We're seeing it affects not only the elderly, unfortunately. The vast majority of cases are still mild, though. I want everyone out there to know, but we need to gear up hospitals. The president invoking the Defense Production Act the other day, which was originally brought in 1950. In All right, well, there you have it. That's Dr. Mark Siegel, and, 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 and I was right there. He said that New York City and the surrounding area, and let's just say even just the state, because uh, New York City... And, and the surrounding area makes up a lot of the population uh, points of, of New York State. But you got a hundred, let's just say you got a hundred thousand hospital beds, hospital rooms across New York City and the surrounding area in the state of New York. Well, you say, well, that, that's a lot of rooms. And that is, that, that is a lot of rooms. But let's remember that on any given day without this current situation, <laughs> Uh, the, these hospitals are at eighty percent capacity, and now that's that's a that's a rough number that that changes depending on the time of year and the number of people who are sick with other problems, maybe surgeries, cancer treatments, et cetera, et cetera, car accidents. I mean, you got all kind of things. People fall, you know, fall and 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 break their leg. They have to go to the hospital. So, at any given time throughout the year. These hospitals are already busy. They already have the majority of their rooms full. Not all, but the majority. And so when, when, when you say that we have New York City and the surrounding area has 100,000 hospital rooms, well, that's true. But then you have to ask, well, how many are already being used? If let's just say this is all hypothetical, let's just say New York City and the surrounding area Let's just say they're 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 on an, any given day they're at eighty percent capacity, so that knocks out eighty thousand rooms out of a hundred thousand. So that leaves you twenty thousand hospital rooms 
That's assuming that they have all those open. 20,000 hospital rooms in New York City and the surrounding area. And if this thing goes unmitigated, then those, those leftover hospital rooms would be filled up within the matter of probably a week or less, maybe two weeks. But then out of those hospital rooms that are left over in New York, you have to ask, well, how many ventilators do they have? You know, how many ventilators do they have to treat those patients? So you get the idea here. The hospitalization rate seems to be the one thing that is the overall problem and that makes this virus stand out from others. Now, there's some good news. Uh, This was on the Ingram angle. I'm going to play clip three here in a minute. But there's some good news when it comes to the overall mortality rate. The World Health Organization a few weeks ago said that they believed the mortality rate was 3.4%. But as this thing has gone on, and this varies per country and per age group, it varies overall, but it is believed that the mortality rate may be actually half of that. Let's listen to clip three. This is the Ingram angle. Here's some other promising news about COVID-19's mortality rate. Now check this out. Using a slew of public and previously published information, a group of researchers estimated the probability of dying after developing symptoms of COVID-19 in Wuhan was 1.4%. Now, that's it's still not, not great. We don't want anyone to die, but that's at least 50% lower as a mortality rate than has been previously reported. Well, there you have it. So Laura Ingram there saying that it could we could soon find out with as this goes on that the mortality rate is really at about 1.4 percent or around 1 percent, 2 percent instead of 3.4. And you might say, well, that's not really that much of a difference. But when you're talking about life and death and talking about thousands of people, that that does make a, a big difference. And. There's something that everyone's thinking, but nobody's saying that I'm going to say. Some people are talking about it, but most people aren't because they're afraid of what the response is going to be. But if we find out that the mortality rate is down around 1%, yeah, you've still got the hospitalization rate issue, which we're going to have to adjust to to meet the needs of our country. But the the overall question that is lingering in everyone's mind is how long does this go on? And I'm not talking about the virus. I'm talking about the precautions that we're taking. How long does this, for California and New York, how long does this stay-at-home order from the governor go on? And, you know, I'm not, I don't think we're to the point where we can start saying, you know, that, that our constitutional rights are being infringed upon and, you know, the, the, the liberals are taking advantage of this to trample the Constitution. That may be happening on, on other levels, smaller levels. But I think overall, I mean, look, there's conservative governors who are taking the same extreme measures to a certain extent. 
So I don't think we're at a point where we need to start talking about how how people should start defying the government and doing what they want to do and ignoring our leaders. I just don't think we're at that point. I think we need to heed to the advice of those who do this for a living, which is our uh, governors, our local health officials. And everyone's pretty much saying the same thing. And they're saying that you need to, in some instances, stay at home. In other instances, maybe you can go out and do a few things, but keep your distance, wash your hands, et cetera, et cetera. You've been hearing this for weeks. But to my, to my point, when I got started on this, is if the overall mortality rate, we come to find out in a week or two that the overall mortality rate is much, much lower. Maybe we find some medicines, which we'll talk about, that can treat this, treat the symptoms. Then I, I would just, I think we need to be thinking about, as a country, how we can start migrating back to normal life. I'm not saying we, we go to you know football stadiums with 80,000 people. Maybe we hold off on that. But I'm talking about letting restaurants open back up, at least on a limited level, letting people go back to work and go back to doing things where you're not really around that many people. Yeah, let's still wash our hands. Let's clean surfaces. Let's do common sense things. Let's maybe keep our distance. We can all do that. That's really not a major disruption to daily life. Whether I sit one seat next to some, whether I sit directly next to someone in a conference room or whether I see, sit six feet away, it, overall, that's not really a big deal. But when, when you start adding up the cost to our country, the, I mean, this isn't, I'm not just talking about dollar bills here. I'm talking about, we're talking about homes. We're talking about families who aren't going to be able to pay their mortgage and in some instances aren't going to be able to go to the grocery store. And the, the overall damage here that we're going to see happen to our economy if we do not do something to intervene here, and I'm not talking about government sending everybody money. That may be a part of the solution, but I'm talking about slowly migrating back to our daily lives here in the coming weeks. Because if we don't do that, the, the, the long-term effects of this are going to be horrendous. Not just from a financial standpoint, but from a quality of life standpoint. And so we'll see how this plays out. Maybe it, maybe it hopefully not. Maybe it gets worse and, and, and then those, my type of suggestion is not realistic. But you know, if, if hopefully, well, here's what I'm hopeful of, that our country can get this at least under manageable control to where we can start getting our economy back moving again, even if we slowly start getting it back moving. But anything is better than nothing at this point. And I honestly think those people in California and New York who are being told to stay at their house, you've got about, I'm just predicting you've got about one or two weeks of that, and then people are going to start getting mad. And I'm not trying to make a joke out of this, but I'm just telling you, I mean, you you tell Americans, I mean, the culture who likes to be blowing and going and always doing something, 
which is not always a good thing. But you tell you tell 40 million people in California to stay at the house for more than a week or two, people are going to start getting mad and angry. It's just, I don't think it's going to end well. And so I don't know what this means. We'll keep an eye on it, but I'm just brainstorming and talking out loud about some creative ways we can start getting back to our daily lives, but still take common sense precautions to slow the spread of this virus. I told you I was going to talk about some good news about a drug that could prove actually hopeful when it comes to treating this coronavirus. And that is a drug that's actually been around for a long time. Some people call it chloroquine. Other people call it hydroxychloroquine. Same thing. And it basically has has been used traditionally to treat malaria and some other things, severe arthritis. Well, this uh, drug is is proving at this point hopeful in treating people with the coronavirus. There's some doctors throughout the country who have been prescribing this and giving it to patients with coronavirus for the last few weeks. And I was listening to a doctor up in New York, right outside of New York City. He has a roughly 100 patients in his care with the coronavirus at the local hospital. And he has seen zero deaths from the coronavirus within his patient group. Now, yes, that's not a controlled environment. I get it. Yada, yada, yada. Not FDA approved. Yada, yada, yada. I get that. But I'm talking about in just a realistic standpoint, it's proven proving to be effective in certain instances. So we'll see where that goes. But I mean, something like that, if we could find some kind of drug that's already on the market that could really slow this thing down and make it less uh, fatal, then that would be a huge breakthrough and maybe even one of the breakthroughs that help us get back to our daily lives to a certain extent. I want to play clip two here. This is uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox News, and he's talking about four different senators, specifically Senator Richard Burr out of North Carolina, and how they are believed to be involved in uh, a crime called insider trading. Clip two, let's listen. So you may have seen the news reports this afternoon. The chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee sold more than a million dollars in stock in mid-February after learning how devastating the Chinese coronavirus could be. He had inside information about what could happen to our country, which is now happening, but he didn't warn the public. He didn't give a primetime address. He didn't go on television to sound the alarm. He didn't even disavow an op-ed he'd written just 10 days before claiming was America was, quote, better prepared than ever for coronavirus. He didn't do any of those things. Instead, what did he do? He dumped his shares in hotel stocks so he wouldn't lose money. And then he stayed silent. Now, maybe there's an honest explanation for what he did. If there is, he should share it with the rest of us immediately. Otherwise, he must resign from the Senate and face prosecution for insider trading. There is no greater moral crime than betraying your country in a time of crisis. And that appears to be what happened. Folks, this is, this, if this proves to be true, this is absolutely disgusting. 
And to give you a little background here, if you have if you had trouble understanding what what Tucker Carlson was saying there, what he what he basically introduced is a news story that is that is claiming that is saying that Senator Richard Burr, Senator Dianne Feinstein out of California, and two other senators. I'm not going to say their names because I don't want to misquote it because this is a, we're talking about crimes here. But four U.S. senators, including Senator Richard Burr and Dianne Feinstein of California, they, uh, their financial disclosures that they have to file periodically as part of being a senator, these disclosures showed that in the days following a classified briefing on the coronavirus in January, they sold hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stock a couple weeks before the market crashed. And you say, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that that is a crime. That is called insider trading. When, when someone of power uses non-public information, classified information, leverages that information to make certain stock trades that save them money or make them money, that is textbook insider trading. And I would almost guarantee you that these four senators are not the only ones that did this. And this is what is disgusting about Washington, D.C., amongst many things. What's disgusting is that this stuff happens all the time. It just doesn't be, become public. Politicians in Washington, D.C., for years, have been leveraging their office leveraging their positions of power to make millions overall. I'm talking about millions overall. Who knows the exact number? Peter Schweitzer, who wrote the book Clinton Cash, we've played clips of him on here multiple times. He's, He's estimated the numbers. He's run the numbers. But this kind of stuff, insider trading, Wheeling and dealing, the backroom deals that happen in Washington, D.C. are absolutely disgusting. And it makes it even more reprehensible when political leaders use their offices in times of crisis to make money or to save themselves from losing money. What would have been the noble thing to do for Senator Richard Burr is to go on national television the day after that briefing and tell the rest of America what's coming so that myself and everyone else could have also backed out of the stock market and saved ourselves money. But no, only the politicians get the inside information and only the people of power get warnings about what's going on in in our country. Exposing Washington American Family Radio, check out our website, AFR.net. Stay tuned to American Family Radio throughout the week and the weekend, and we'll keep you abreast of all the news going on in our country.
The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.